I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hello again, everyone. So in today's podcast, we have this moment where you will hear myself talking with my guest, Rebecca Bocat. And this really interesting little moment came about, which is why these interviews are so much fun. So I asked Rebecca, who is a registered dietitian, who is obviously recovered from an eating disorder, if she could think about what an ideal day is like as a recovered person. And Rebecca asked, are you talking about a regular day or are you talking about a vacation day? And I thought, wow, I didn't think about that. So I said, I want to start with vacation day. So Rebecca goes and paints this beautiful narrative, which you'll all hear about her on the beach and grills going and sand castles with nephews, all the, all the fun stuff that we think about when we go on vacation. Before she moved on to her quote unquote normal day as a recovered person, I said, wait, Rebecca, before you continue, Tell me what that day would be like on vacation with your eating disorder. The entire tone changed. I want to say when you're struggling with an eating disorder, you can go on vacation, but unfortunately you bring your eating disorder with you. It is amazing how everything you're hoping to get in an eating disorder, feeling at peace, feeling comfortable in your body, feeling safe, feeling like you fit in, feeling like you're part of a group. None of that happens when you go on vacation and bring your eating disorder. As Rebecca talks about the difference in the two days One is a day filled with community, people, relaxing, family, food. The other is a day with anxiety, exercise, individual grocery shopping. Could not be in more contrast to each other. Clients, I want you to hear this. I want you to think about it. Your eating disorder goes everywhere with you. So these are just reasons that we're trying to get the message out there that being recovered is so much more gratifying than being in your eating disorder. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. Our guest for today's episode is, as most of the guests are, a dear colleague and a dear friend. I would like to introduce to you all Rebecca Bocat. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I can't think of a better way to start my day than sipping my latte and getting to talk with you about recovery. Rebecca, I love that. I love it. So Rebecca is a dietitian who has been working in the field of eating disorders for quite some time. So Rebecca, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your practice, what you do, things like that? So like Karen said, after many years working for treatment centers at higher levels of care, I decided to shift gears and started a private dietetics practice that's based in Boston. It is called Nourished. Um, And in my practice, I provide nutrition counseling to clients struggling with eating disorders and disordered eating. I also provide ancillary support services outside of the office setting, such as grocery shopping, cooking and meal preparation, restaurant outings, and monitored movement for clients that are ready to reintroduce exercise and activity back into their lives. I love it. I love it. I don't normally go in this direction, but I love all the services you provide. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about the last one you said. Can you explain a little bit about the movement support? Because that sounds really interesting. Yeah. So. You know, what I think I have found, especially working, and I'm curious to hear, you know, your thoughts, but what I found working in higher levels of care is that there is such um, a bridge that needs to be built between between sort of higher levels of care and as clients transition through the continuum to lower levels of care and then outpatient work and how they can, you know, when their treatment team feels that they are appropriate and healthy and ready to do so is to work activity back into their lives. Because so many of our clients have had such a dysfunctional relationship with exercise and activity in their eating disorders. I think that this is such an important topic. And again, I did not anticipate to start the podcast like this, but I just, I love it because I know there are many, many clients out there that are petrified to enter treatment because their biggest fear is that they're going to be told they can never exercise again. And that is not the right message. And I love explaining to clients, you can go back to exercise. I want you to be able to go back to exercise. Everything in life is about balance. First, though, we need to make sure you're feeding yourself appropriately. First, though, we need to make sure you're not purging. We need to start slower. You need support around it. So I think it is such an important topic, introducing, reintroducing exercise into the process and doing it with somebody who is qualified to help with that. Absolutely. And I think that 
in, in, in doing it in a very mindful and thoughtful way, we also allow clients to really look at what their relationship was like with exercise and movement and activity in their eating disorders versus in their recovery and how that relationship can shift into something so beautiful, right? You know, because the ability to move our bodies is truly a gift. And, and I don't want to ever take that away from somebody who is in a place, like you said, who's nourishing themselves, who's stable, who's ready emotionally, physically, mentally, et cetera, to do that, start doing that work. Yes. Yes. And also sometimes what I say to clients is we're going to have to redefine your definition of exercise. It's probably not going to be what you want it to be. And that's okay. We'll sort of, we'll work through that together. Is there, if and, and I don't know if we're speaking for your experience with exercise or whatnot, but were there any myths about being recovered that you thought were going to come true, did come true, did not come true, things like that. Any myths about a recovered way of living? That's an excellent question. I think the, the, I don't know that this is the biggest myth, but the myth that I think I hear most frequently from clients is that recovery confers body positivity. Because I'm going to be honest, that has not been my experience. Um, and with that said, I've also come to really appreciate and respect my body for all the things it allows me to do in life. It allows me as a, as a single female, it allows me to, you know, schlep my groceries up the stairs. It, right, it allows me to, I mean, the other day I uh, bought, purchased a new area rug and I, you know, went to the concierge to pick it up and he was sort of like, oh, you need help. Let me get a cart. And I just picked it up, carried it on my shoulder. And he was so shocked, <laughs> right? Um, but that was such a moment where I was like, yes, I am strong. I am capable. I can do this, right? Um, so I think that, you know, and as an active person, I just really do believe that it is so important to take care of our bodies um, such that I can continue to move it in a way that I want to, in a way that makes me happy because it really is truly a gift. It's so interesting. First of all, I love that you bring it up. Everybody talks about body positivity and how challenging it can be. I also know for myself that one of the greatest gifts I've given myself as a recovered person is a body that's healthy enough to sleep through the night. Mm. Right? I know that when I was in my eating disorder, I affected my sleep patterns. I wasn't able to sleep very well. I couldn't wake up feeling very restful. Now, granted, this isn't about body positivity, but this is still about what the body does for us. And we see so many clients that struggle to get a good night's sleep because their sleep is so disrupted due to the eating disorder. I always like to bring in sort of the unobvious things because those are the things that, like I said, I, I don't take for granted. I just, thank God I can get a full night's sleep. You know, it's it, it just as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, <laughs> and it's been a lot of recent experiences, but you know, where 
I'll see an email from a client that's at some really odd hour in the middle of the night, right? Or a message from a client that's, you know, and I'm thinking, what are you doing up at that time? And, and, and so and I think speaks to exactly what you were saying is that, you know, for a lot of different physiological reasons, the body needs to be on alert. And that includes nighttime. And it doesn't allow them to get that restorative sleep that is so essential to, to functioning. To functioning, to your mood, to your your courage to take harder, to do, you know, take bigger risks during the recovery process. So it just it's all encompassing, right? Did you ever notice, was there like a poignant shift in your thinking or was recovery gradual, like the thought process for that? Because it's different for everybody. Absolutely. You know, Karen, I think about how we set expectations for clients and their families when we tell them that recovery is a marathon and not a sprint. And that was really true of my experience in recovery. It was certainly an exercise in endurance. Um, Just to give you some framework, I didn't start getting help until my sophomore year of college. Um, And my eating disorder started between fifth and sixth grade, right? So that was a long time. And thinking about that age, you know, being a sophomore in college, there were so many life transitions that happened early on in my recovery where the eating disorder had a, a way of asserting itself, but it was in such a sly and subversive way. So that although I wasn't, I wasn't using eating disorder behaviors, I wasn't having eating disorder thoughts. Looking back, I was still very much in recovery, you know, and then as time went on and I became more mature and had the freedom to get to determine my life course and where things went, there just became such less room for the eating disorder. But it certainly was, it was a gradual, gradual experience for me. I don't know if you can answer this, but do you remember what it was like after having the eating disorder, not only since the fifth grade, but really, really important developmental years, the the length of time you were using the behaviors? What, what was that shift like? Even though it was a gradual shift, what, what was it like to say when you were a sophomore in college, I, I actually think I'm ready to to do this work. How did you get there? You know, it's it's so interesting because I don't have strong recollections of like what my thought process was at that time. And I think part of that was I hadn't been in therapy yet and hadn't had the opportunity to really delve into uh, my my conscious and unconscious and and develop that self-awareness yet. Um, but I just remember having this feeling of, I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of living my life like this because it started to interfere, especially in college with just the ability to be social. And that was such right. College is such an important time to be able to do that. And I was really finding it was very limiting and restricting in that way. And yeah, I just, I think I was just so, I was exhausted. I was exhausted after that many years. And, you know, ultimately I was the one that reached out for help. Um, But I do remember a really pivotal conversation that I had with my sister. 
And it's so funny how like certain memories are seared (laughs) into our brains. Um, But, you know, my sister and I, who we are not, you know, that close. um, But I was, I was living in a, um, in an on-campus housing that was an apartment setup that I shared with three other girls. And so the only privacy that you were able to get was in the bathroom. (laughs) Um, And I remember, you know, sitting on the bathroom floor in the dark, talking on the phone with my sister, which was a rarity. um, And we're both crying. And again, a rarity. Um, and I remember she said something to me to the effect of, you don't deserve to live your life this way. And that was what I needed to hear to be able to start getting help. And I think it was a really short period of time between that and when I started researching and reached out. First of all, that is a beautiful story. And it reminds me of a story which I'll I'll tell in a moment, but I think I think it's an important message because loved ones, whether they're family members, friends, whatnot, they're like, what do I say? What's the magic thing to say to somebody who's struggling? And I say, just whatever's in your heart. Really? Whatever's in your heart. I remember when I was home and It was the middle of the night. Again, now we're talking about the middle of the night. And my father heard me crying. I was in bed and I was crying. And my father came in. Wow, this is the first time I've talked about my father in a long time that I can feel beautiful tears like forming in my eyes right now. I love him so much. So my father came into my bedroom and he sat down on my bed and he said, what's the matter? And I said, dad, I'm not supposed to be this tired at 21 years old. I'm so tired. I don't think I can do this. This meaning the recovery process. My father was such a brilliant human being. And one of his brilliance was about using just small, simple sayings. And my dad said, you know what, Karen, I think for just for tonight, you just need to breathe in some fresh air. My father cracked the window By the way, I'm now realizing this might be why I like to sleep with the air conditioning on, even in the wintertime. My father cracked the window and this rush of cold air came in. And he said, just breathe. Just breathe. Just get some fresh air. By the way, was that the thing that turned my recovery process around? No. But I got to tell you, it did help me go back to sleep that night. And I remember how kind his words were. I think what clients are looking for is genuine support. And that's what genuine support can look like. It can also look like you're not going back to school until these behaviors are underway and you figure out the function of it. So I don't want to give clients the impression like all you have to do is to have, you know, have someone say to breathe. But those are the things that you're talking about that are like seared in our memories. And who knew dad was using tips, right? Dad didn't know that in the moment. He just went with what intuitively he could offer at that moment. 
I love that story. So beautiful. So beautiful. And this is often, and, and I'm saying this because often, you know, especially parents are like, what is the right thing to say? And I say to them, mm, you're probably not always going to say the right thing. It's okay. This is this is something that as a support, you're going to have to understand. You're not always, in fact, kind of rarely going to say the right thing, depending on where they're at in the recovery process. And that's okay. Say it anyway. If you need to say it, it's okay. So now I'm just speaking about fathers or whatnot, but was there anyone that played an instrumental role in your recovery process? Minus that one pivotal conversation that I had with my sister, and I've never shared what I'm about to share with anyone. So, but I, but I'm thinking about it, you know, um, I remember I don't know why. I think as a younger sister and a younger sibling, it was just my sister and I, um, you know, I would always go into her room <laughs> when I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> and, and, but this was after she had moved out of the house. So I'm assuming, I don't remember when, I'm assuming she was in college and maybe I was still in high school at this point. And I, rem- I was looking for something in her desk drawer and I found a paper that she wrote on eating disorders. Oh my gosh about me. And I've never told her that I found this paper. And so well, she's she's going to know now. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to know now. Um yeah, um that was fascinating and it was so I, I never really even thought about it until now but like reading well cuz obviously it was, you know, it was a it was a paper for for school. So there was sort of that clinical lens that she was looking at things through, but then also, and things that she noticed about my behaviors and such that I wasn't even aware of at that point. But, you know, ultimately it was me. I was the one who just had had enough and reached out for help. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to just go back a little bit when when we were talking about the fact that you were a sophomore in college when you started the recovery process. Now, I give a lot of talks at universities, colleges, whatnot, and I often start by saying to the students, I wish I were sitting in your seat right now and I had a do-over because I don't remember college at all. I don't have any college friends. I don't have any college memories. And the it's not that I don't have memories because I was like partying so hard that I like blacked out. I was in my eating disorder 24 hours a day, whether it was behaviorally, whether it was my mind, whether it was scanning the supermarket for the absolute perfect ingredient or, you know, going to the store to buy laxatives. Like I don't remember college at all. I would love a do-over just to know what it feels like to have that experience. I, you know, it was interesting. I got in with a wonderful therapist um, who specialized in eating disorders, who was not too far from um, my college campus. And we made such amazing, amazing progress in a very short period of time. Um, that I even uh, after graduation and years later would sometimes do phone sessions with him. And I 
you know, without getting too much into all of the daddy issues, um, you know, actually having a male therapist as not only my first experience with a therapist, but having a male sort of more paternal role validate my feelings was so powerful. Um, And it did allow me to kind of engage, although I still very early on in recovery, it did allow me to have even a shred or iota of, of a life in college. So I was so appreciative that I did have some memories, although most of those were from like a junior, senior year, but. Is there anything else, and you may not feel a need to share it, but is there anything else you want to share about working with a male therapist from a female perspective? Or, you know, I also want to say there's a lot of male clients that work with female clients. You know, there's a lot of transgender. So, and it's different for everybody. Some people, it doesn't have that much of an impact what the what the sexual orientation is of the clinician or dietitian. For some, it does. Did it it sounds like it did make a difference for you. Is there anything else you'd want to add about that? I think at that point in my life, um, needing to address some of the the underlying issues that were driving a lot of the eating disorder behaviors, um, it was important and actually um, imperative almost that I had a male therapist. Later in life, I've, I've had other therapists. And even at this point in my life, I still see a therapist. Um, she is actually a psychiatrist, um, that also does therapy and she is not an eating disorder specialist. And actually, you know, funny enough, if, unless I'm talking about work, it it doesn't even come up. (laughs) Right. But, you know, um, and at this point in my life, I don't know that I would seek out a male therapist. And at that point in college, I certainly didn't seek a male therapist out. It just was someone who was local, who had an opening. And it was such a corrective experience actually having a male figure be emotionally accessible and validate my experience. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we talk about the fact that being in therapy is not a negative thing. It is a very healthy thing. And so I think sometimes people are like, a therapist sees a therapist? Shouldn't they know how to take care of everything. It's not about that. It's about having a sacred space that you can go to just for you, someone that you can discuss things with, explore things. There are still things that I need to go deep inside and I might need a prompt of someone to ask me, what about this? And so this is also why the the intention of the podcast, life still happens after you've recovered from an eating disorder. It's how you navigate through it. And one of the things that keeps a lot of people recovered is that they are constantly in therapy. So they have that sacred space. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a big believer in therapy. And if I could wave my magic wand and make therapy accessible to every person. I think 
everyone can benefit from being in therapy because there's so much opportunity for continued uh, development and growth, personal development and growth um, that can come from having, like you said, that sacred space to do that deep introspective work. Yes. And life comes up. Unexpected pandemics happen. Loss of a friend, loss of a family member, breakups. There's nothing that anyone has to go through alone, which is why therapists see therapists. Do you feel when working with an eating disorder, and I'm saying therapist and dietitian because Rebecca, you're a dietitian, do you feel it is best? for a client to work with somebody who's recovered or I, let me take the word best back. I apologize. Is there an advantage or what do you think? That's, I mean, that's such a great question. Um, and yes, I think that there is a level of understanding and being seen that clients can feel when they're sitting in session with a recovered clinician. And that's not to discount the amazing, beautiful work that our colleagues and clinicians that have no personal framework or direct experience with an eating disorder um, have, and yet they are so amazing at what they do. Um, but there's something about intimately knowing the struggle that can make working with a recovered clinician so powerful. And, and I think that's why working, whether it's therapist, dietitian, but clinician professional um, who is recovered can be very effective. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm a, or I'm imagining listeners right now are thinking, huh, dietitian, all you do all day is talk about food, calories, fats, weight. By the way, all things that are necessary. So these are not bad words. These are real words. Do you ever get triggered? What's it like? I mean, as a clinician, that's not my whole repertoire. It's not my whole dialogue. I talk about it. I bring it up in sessions, but I also talk about mostly the emotional part. You talk about it all day. How does that impact you? Well, first of all, I, I do want to say, and maybe this has been more recent, but I wish I could address the nutrition pieces <laughs> because what I have been noticing is, you know, I'm doing a lot of the, what we kind of call ourselves, you know, dietitians that work in this field and that specialize in eating disorders is nutrition therapists. Because if only we could focus on sort of the nutrition piece and, and stay home with that. <laughs> and by stay home, I mean, be able to focus on that. I have spent, you know, a lot of time in sessions recently trying to kind of shift hats a little bit. And, you know, I am not a therapist. I very much respect staying in my lane and, and my scope of practice, as I think a lot of dietitians do. But there's so much resistance to change that comes up. What good is it if I start talking about a meal plan when you're telling me, you know, I can't do recovery until I reach my goal weight. I mean, what's the point, right? So we got to unpack that first. But 
you know, I think back to, to your question about, and, and I want to make sure I understand it. The question is, do I ever, do I ever feel triggered? Yeah. Do you ever feel triggered talking about the things that went into your own eating disorder, which is, and by the way, I don't know if this is what went into it, but a lot of them, weight, calories, carbohydrates, complex fats, you know, all these things, exercise, did any of, what's it like? Does it ever trigger you? Actually, I don't. I do experience a moment or moments of recognition. Like, yes, I do vaguely remember what it was like to see things through that lens, but I certainly don't, I don't ever feel triggered in my work. It's, it's kind of like the eating disorder isn't even an option for me. It's not even a consideration. You know, that degree and level of suffering is not something I will ever choose to go back to. Mm -hmm. I want to say, going back to what you talked about as like nutrition therapy, I, 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 you know, bow my head to all the dietitians, you as well, that I work with because you and I do share clients. I, I think I look at dietitians as often having some of the most beautiful therapeutic skills, clinical therapeutic skills, because you're right. You can't just bring somebody into a, into a room and say, you know what, this is what we're going to do for the meal plan. This is how we're going to, you know, there's going to be no more binging and purging, no more this, no more that. And they're sitting there glazed over because they're like, uh, I don't think so. I'm not there yet. And so I just, I wanted to acknowledge that. I, I really, really do think that you wear both hats often. Well, thank you so much. And I, I really appreciate, you know, you acknowledging that and, and that validation, like, yeah, it's really, t- it's really tough work. We all do. This is really challenging work, but yeah. And a lot of times we're all holding multiple pieces at the same time. And that's why they're working as a multidisciplinary team when you can have one and assemble one. Um, is such an amazing thing because I can then say to you, like after session, I can say, Karen, this came up, you know, and I just have a gut feeling there's a lot of unpacking to do here around this thing. I think it's really important for listeners to know it is almost, I'm going to say it's a necessity to have a multidisciplinary team. You need a doctor, dietitian, a therapist and a psychiatrist. It is, and it is important that you advocate to your therapist or your dietitian to say, I want to make sure you're all communicating. Because Rebecca, you and I communicate a few times a week about our clients, which by the way, is so beneficial for the clients. And like you said, for us as treatment team providers. And I'm also imagining right now some client, some people are listening to it being like, uh-uh, I don't want them all to talk. Well, that's part of the process. And I'm going to encourage all of you to talk to your therapist about that this week because it's really important, right? Collaboration is just so essential. And I, I always tell clients, like, you're the most impor- important person on this team. Right. Yes. And so we not only have to collaborate with each other, but you 
you get to drive this bus. Like you get to drive that collaboration. So show up in that yes. way. Yes. And I think saying that is really important. And, and, you know, some, you and I work with a client that the client is involved in all of our communication. We have another client that the client is not involved in the communication. So it really depends. Like there are times when clients say, I want to be on all those emails. And by the way, there may be times where I say it's not clinically appropriate. So you're not going to be. And here's why. I will never say to a client, no, nothing else. If I'm going to say no, I'm going to give a reason. Otherwise, that that no is going to put up a, a brick wall between me and the client. So you're not always going to get what you want. So, you know, clients may say, can I be on that group email? And I'll say, absolutely not. And here's the reason why. Or I'll say, fantastic. In fact, put some stuff in like you and I often write like to the, you know, in our group email with our client, like, let us know if we're getting it right or if we're misunderstanding something. So they do feel, I think it's really important for the client to feel part of it. And I want to invite every client, if it is deemed appropriate, um, to be involved and to be part of that. Um, again, you guys, you know, I tell my clients this all the time. You guys are driving the bus. We are the pesky passengers on it. Yes. And I also say right now your eating disorder has the wheel. So we're all going to try to try to switch drivers. <laughs> you know, we as the treatment team might be the backseat drivers, but we want the eating disorder to be all the way in the back. But right now, and that's what I also say all the time is you have to understand which voice is talking right now. What part of you is talking? Is it the eating disorder voice or is it the healthy voice? By the way, they're all parts of you. It's not separate. It's not a separate entity. But which part has the stage right now? No, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. That, And you know what? We don't just want the eating disorder to be in the way, way back. We want the eating. We're going to the eating disorder off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> eating disorder is not allowed. But we also say, or at least I do, we're not going to kick the eating disorder out right away. Can't do that. Most, most, most clients can't tolerate that. What? When I, I, I know I keep flip-flopping back and forth, but we were talking about earlier about having an eating disorder in college and stuff like that. Let's fast forward to now. We're in today with Rebecca. What's an ideal day for you as a recovered person? And I don't mean like what was the actual date and what, what does an ideal day look like for you? Now, let me ask you this. Is this ideal day kind of a normal everyday in life? Or is this like, could this be a vacation day? You know what? I'm going to ask you to do both because we need to know how to have an ideal day in recovered in, in every day. And we also need to know how to go on vacation without an eating disorder. So I'd like to hear both, Rebecca. Okay. So I'm going to start with sort of my, my, ideal vacation day. And the reason that this is probably so present is because um, we're in Boston. And although we've had a streak of some nice days, um, 
my va- my yearly vacation was canceled due to COVID. Um, every year we um, go to St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands, my family and I. Um, and it was something that my grandparents had actually a tradition they had started. They started taking us there when we were really little. And after they passed, we sort of brought that back, back to life. So, um, but yeah, going and, you know, we'll start the day with going to a beach, um, swimming, snorkeling. I get to play in the sand, build sandcastles with my nephews. Um, and, you know, being in such a serene setting, um, but particularly by the water, because I'm cancer. So you know, as that crab, I love being by the water, but it provides such a strong sense of connection and grounds me to sort of the bigger world outside of myself. So I always find that it's such a helpful reset. Um, and then, you know, the day will progress and, you know, we'll make, um, we'll make, uh, pina coladas while my nephews and I will sing Jimmy Buffett's do you like pina coladas uh, of course there's our virgin put that out there um you know and we make sure we buy those really cheesy um paper umbrellas that you can put in your drink right because how can you have like a tropical drink without an umbrella you have to absolutely and then you know we get to all you know be in the k- kitchen together cooking dinner with my dad and my brother-in-law on grill duty and yeah, it's just, it's such a, such a magical time. So that's my ideal vacation day. Yeah. Before we go to your ideal regular day, can you imagine what it would be like? And I'm sure you can bringing the eating disorder on vacation with you. For all the people, all the listeners that couldn't just see my reaction when Karen could, my whole posture, everything just dropped because it would have been spent in my eating disorder, not being present with all these other wonderful experiences that I would be completely missing because I'd be focused on, you know, having to make sure that I go to the grocery store to figure out what's for dinner that night. And, you know, having to get up and I can't go to the beach with you guys in the morning because I need to, I need to get my workout in or whatever it was and is, and it's, yeah. Ugh. It reminds me and forgive me, I do want to get to your other day, but I have a client right now and we had a session yesterday and I said, what does the rest of the day look like for you? She's in high school and she said, oh, like I'm going to, you know, finish a paper and then my parents are making dinner and blah, blah, blah. And then she said, Karen, do you remember the times when I used to demand to know exactly what my parents were making for dinner? And I said, yes, I do. She said, do you remember the times I had to be in the kitchen to make sure I watched all the ingredients? I said, yes, I do. She said, do you know how nice it is for me to say at some point, my parents are just going to call me for dinner? And I sit down. I said, I, I can't imagine how freeing that feels for you because you have it, you're just learning how to experience that. And, you, and then you got all this other time to do and focus on and be present with whatever else you wanted to fill that time with. I mean, you also got, you know, she sounds like she's made such beautiful progress and that she now has, she has more time and energy to devote to other things. Schoolwork, which she's not psyched about, but. 
you know, it's a necessary evil, I suppose. <laughs> she's like, God damn it. Now I have to do more homework. No, but no, but now she's just like, I can't believe how much I tortured myself. I said, I know, I know. It's a level of suffering that is, you know, you know, I don't, I don't, I would never bestow on even my worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would a recovered day be like, a, uh, an ideal day now? Um, you know, it's, it's not setting an alarm. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> it's not having to be anywhere at any specific time. Um, it's definitely would be spent doing something with friends, even if it's just, you know, trying like, especially now, you know, where we're kind of on lockdown due to the COVID pandemic, but being able to take a walk on the Esplanade and, you know, stop and smell, you know, all of the beautiful flowers that are blooming. And, um, you know, if we weren't in COVID, there might be a spa session or something worked into that day. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Um, but some form of self-care for sure. Because I, I actually do believe it is extremely important. And if I'm feeling like it and I want to move my body, figuring out what way do I want to move my body today? What would feel good? So interesting. I remember, it's almost like all the things that you enjoy now or some of the things Back in my eating disorder, I couldn't tolerate. I think I tried to go for a massage once and I was like, oh, I was so hyper-focused on my body and what does my body look like to the massage therapist? And are they touching this? Are they touching that? Or what are they feeling? Should I eat before? Do I eat after? What do I, I mean, my gosh, I couldn't even relax in that manner. It robs you of everything everything, everything. How do you explain to clients as the dietitian, all of this is accessible and, or maybe I'm telling you how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how do you? And then I'm like, let me tell you how to do your job. (laughs) But it's all contingent on feeding yourself. You can't go for a walk on the Esplanade if you haven't fed yourself or if you've purged or if you've binged because your body is so tired. You can't do any of that unless you appropriately feed yourself. How do clients tolerate that? Well, usually not well, but You know, what I always try to do, though, is have a real honest conversation with them about it. Um, And I hold the hope that I you will get one day to the point where you can go do this without necessarily being able to give it a second thought. But we're not in that place right now. But here, this is the cool thing. These are the things you can do today to move you that much closer to being able to do those things. Um, but you know, as a dietitian and self-proclaimed science nerd, I very much, you know, do talk about, okay, here's the physiological things that are happening in your body right now. This is why we are not recommending it, or we are actually recommending that you abstain or refrain from activity right now. And 
if if going being able to go out get fresh air and go for a walk on a beautiful sunny day is something that is very valuable to you in your life your authentic being then let's figure out what steps we need to take to get you to that point and what can we start with today and i also know that you and i can we we get to know our clients really well and so I, if I know that a client is not going to care about the science, if I know that a client does not worry about, like, I, I could talk about medical complications, which is with a lot of them till I'm blue in the face and they're like, eh, whatever. I don't use that as my approach. I have some clients that if I say, you realize your heart could stop tomorrow, they listen they hear it. They want, they're good with the science. The ones that are good with science and just the facts, I, I shower them with that. I say here, just like you said, here is how our bodies work, function, breed, pump blood. And so I think what's really fun about what you and I do is getting to know our clients as individuals and what works for them specifically. And that's, I think, the thing that I've learned um, throughout sort of my career thus far is that in order for this work to even have the chance of being effective and successful, you have to customize it. It cannot be a cookie cutter approach because just like you said, we have some clients where you know, even the statistics, whatever information we present with them means nothing to them, you know, um, but something else might resonate with them and it's learning what those things are. And that doesn't mean that I don't share this information. It means that I don't put, um, how do I say this? Like I've had parents say to me, like, have you told, have you told him that he's going to, you know, die from, the, and I, oh, I, sorry, everyone. I just hit the microphone. Um, and I did it again. <laughs> um, I, and I often say, I have, we've gone over it. It's not internalizing. So I've given the information every once in a while, I'll revisit it, but it's not going to be my focus because it goes in one ear and out the other. So it's also our job to report the truth, report the science, and also know when it's going to land on somebody and when it's going to be wasted on them because you've already said it and they really don't care, right? So again, that's just another thing that I think is super fun about, about what we do and the people that we work with. I want to ask you, speaking of like fun and stuff like that, is there something, is there a trait or a presence that you have that people don't expect you to have? Yes, that I'm extremely sensitive People don't know that. So from an early age, I was highly sensitive and attuned, attuned to everyone and everything around me. And, you know, I'm actually so grateful that I am because it has been such an amazing gift that has served me in so many different ways throughout my life. And now allows me to do this work and connect with my clients on such a deeper level. But I think when people first meet me, um, there's always a mismatch between 
how I am perceived and my own perception of myself. Um, and I think, and I, you know, I'm going to take, take a stab at this and say in a similar vein to you, you know, because, and I think you even talked about this on, on, on another episode, but you have a presence about you, you, but you know, you walk in a room and people notice. And, and I think probably to a little lesser degree, although I aspire to be there, um, you know, same thing there, there's something strong about my presence um, that I think some people find either off-putting or intimidating or because I come off as an M, a strong, assertive, independent female, um, you know, people make assumptions. Not all people, but some people I think do. And the thing they least expect is how sensitive I am. I, first of all, love that you just said that. In fact, I can't believe we're winding down because now what I'm going to say is, Rebecca, you may need to come back and we may need to do another episode about stereotypes, about a quote unquote, strong, independent woman and what that means, what our society says about that. Literally, I was just like, damn it. Why did I ask that last? What a powerful, powerful statement. And I'm, I, I can't believe I'm asking you this question now, but I'm, I, I'm curious, does, d- did that play into your eating disorder at all? Whether it was being quote, quote, overly sensitive? Did you feel that you had to overcompensate in a different way? Do you feel like, I, I just am like, oh man, we need to have another episode. We do, because this is like a doorknob moment, right? right? Yes. Will you explain that? Because clients do it all the time, but I don't know if people understand it. You know what's so funny? Uh, I, I was on a telehealth session the other day with a client, and she said something. I said, oh, this is a doorknob moment. And she kind of looked at me. I said, it loses all meaning virtually. <laughs> However. <laughs> this is a this is an end meeting moment. <laughs> yeah. And I, I explained it to her and she laughed and then we decided, so, you know, um, her therapist is someone that I've worked with in the past and then friends with, and I, and we decided we might have to play a little joke on the therapist. Um, and I, told her, I may have encouraged her to have a doorknob moment, <laughs> but not in a like serious way. Um, but yeah, so doorknob moment is when you're sort of winding the session down. And, you know, typically you're in a session room and, and you will get up to kind of open the door. And just in that moment, the client will say something that, and then they come out with some, I mean, it can be, it can take all different sizes and shapes, but it's always something that deserves so much more time, attention, and exploration, either acutely or, you know, kind of. Like something that's just, you can't just leave it and move on. So I just did a doorknob moment and we are going to have to leave it, but it's like a little bit of a cliffhanger, Hmm. right? I would love to come back and talk about this because I could spend probably hours talking about how being, like we said, you know, having these certain traits as a female in this world has been so, oh, 
I, I don't even have the words to, I don't even can't find the word I want to use, but uh, powerful and confusing and so many other things. But yeah, no, I think that, you know, um, sensitivity was something that definitely played a role in my eating disorder, in the development. Um, I also think that in my house, it was actually a survival skill to be sensitive and to be able to read the room and be attuned to other people. Um, so, you know, and that's why I think I've come to appreciate it as a gift. Um, but it, it has served different functions at different times in my life for sure. But yeah, I was a really highly sensitive kid. I had, I felt things strongly. I had a lot of thoughts and I was always told like, you are too much, too much. I don't know how to deal with you from, you know, loving, but emotionally unavailable parents who had no idea what to do with my emotions and feelings. Rebecca, I can't thank you enough. I I am just, I, I'm amazed at you. I do have one more question, but before, and this is to close the podcast, is there anything you want to share with listeners? Anything that I didn't ask you or anything that you want to say? I think we covered a lot and I absolutely think we need to do another episode. I'm like totally serious about this around that because I imagine that is something that a lot of our clients, whether whatever sex they were assigned at birth, whatever they have assigned themselves now. I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, I am only seeing it through, you know, a cisgender female assigned at birth lens. And I can't even imagine probably what that, what that conversation could bring about in terms of all the other layers and pieces to it. Right. I know. Okay, so here you are. We're going to book you again. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. What's this fun question? So my question is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Well, I guess it would depend who was writing it. <laughs> and I can tell you what I would want it to say. Okay. And what that would be was, she wasn't crazy. She was just a goddamn cheetah. What? Say, say more about that. And so all the Glennon Doyle loyalists and super fans out there will know what this is in reference to. And I don't want to try and explain the story because I won't be able to do it justice. So maybe you can fill in. But what I will say is that I very recently had um, maybe a sobering moment um, where I got introduced to the to Glennon Doyle by a friend who is early on in her sobriety. And wait, I'm sorry, time out. And I think everybody needs to hear this again. Did you say you were introduced to Glennon Doyle? I was introduced to her <laughs> by like who Glennon Doyle. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Oh, please. I would have started this podcast with that story. Oh, in my wildest dreams. Right. Okay. I'm glad I clarified because literally my jaw just was just dropped. I'm like, yeah, no, I wish. Um, <laughs> but no, she, we'll rewind. So no, she introduced me to who Glennon Doyle was. Yes. 
And so I, I listened to, to um, Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, the, um, the episode where Glennon Doyle was a guest. Talking about her book, Untamed. Yep. Talking about her book, Untamed. And like, Karen, I can't even tell you, I was driving home actually from the vet. I had taken Frankie, one of my cats to the vet. And I was driving home and I was listening to it. And I was on I-90 and I am sobbing. I mean, just, I've I've not cried like that in so long. And, you know, it was so interesting because they weren't tears of sadness. These were tears of relief because someone finally gave me, and I've been working obviously on this in therapy all along, but really the language to be like, oh, oh, I'm not broken. I'm not broken, you know, and I can be me and what a gift this is. And I just, yeah, it was just this huge moment of relief. I love tears. I think it'd be so amazing, right? I'm a big crier. I cry all the time. I'm not. And so for me, this was like, yeah, it, it was really powerful. It really hit me. And I listened, I ended up listening to it a second time too. It's a beautiful, beautiful episode. So I, I do encourage everyone to listen to it. Brene Brown's episode with Glennon Doyle. It's fabulous. I think it's like her second or third episode in the new in the new podcast series. Not that I'm a, a groupie or anything. <laughs> no, none of us are fans. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was like a little alarming. Right now, Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle are like, make sure to keep her off of every single list. <laughs> We're going to get blacklisted. Yeah, I just horrified them. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? They were part of their community, right? They always talk about their community and, and, and we're, we're a part of that. And that's such a beautiful thing. I know. And I'm glad you're part of my community. I really am. Really. And Karen, I'm glad you're part of my community. It means so much to me. And thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. My pleasure. And as I said, you will be back, right? Uh, oh, I, I'm planning on it. Okay. Okay. You know how to reach me. <laughs> I know how to reach you. You all heard it here. She will be back. All right, Rebecca, thank you again. Thank you so, so much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with everyone next week. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.